The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and here is your top five at five. The tax man cometh. President Biden preparing to roll out massive tax hikes, potentially doubling capital gains on the wealthy and many business owners. Markets nervously watching the reported proposal. We'll cut through the noise, what it means for you and stocks with historical data, keeping the pause in place or rolling it back out soon. A member of the CDC Committee on Vaccines is here to talk J&J. Chip Crunch, shares of Intel in the red following its latest results and its new CEO warning of a prolonged semi-shortage. An insider buying is back. The top five stocks getting bought by the C-suite This week shows there may be something about a train car that's magic. That's a hint. It's Friday, April 23rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. Happy Friday, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get right to it, to the markets and your money after declines of what we'll call the April surprise. Yesterday afternoon, reports the president is set to propose more tax hikes, including a potentially record high capital gains rate of over 43% for those making more than $1 million per year. That would be a doubling of tax rates. Now, keep in mind, capital gains rates have never been that high. Even in the go-go 1970s, stocks fell across the board on the news. The Dow to down 321, but futures, well, they're turning it around just a bit. Investors have now had some time to digest the tax idea rather than just, you know, not think and hit the sell button. But Wall Street certainly is a little nervous, and we're starting to get some commentary as people have had time to think about it. For one, UBS out with a note saying that a capital gains hike of that level could cut S&P 500 valuations by up to 7%. Now, any hike would likely impact high growth stocks more, things like technology names, which is interesting because keep in mind what we learned from Eamon Javers yesterday. Technology companies are the biggest money lobbyists in Washington, D.C. We always thought it was around Section 230, or privacy. Well, maybe we now know another reason why they are throwing tens of millions of dollars at lobbying firms and folks in Congress. Technology names certainly could be the hit hardest by any kind of a change in capital gains. All right, around the world now as our futures are slightly in the green stocks into their week in Asia mixed. Japan is coming down a bit. It's been a red hot start to the year, but they lost ground again. But the Chinese markets were higher. And in Europe, all the major averages are down. But They are not down by much, a couple of tenths of 1%. All right, let's jump right into it on this Friday. And that is your top story. 
and the president's reported plan to raise capital gains taxes on those with incomes over $1 million. Bertha Coombs has more on what's expected to be in that proposal, what we know, and what we don't. Bertha. Brian, the White House's apparent plan to raise taxes on millionaires is a part of its broader plan to overhaul the U.S. economy. According to multiple outlets, President Biden will seek an increase in the tax on capital gains to as high as nearly 40 percent from the current 20 percent for those Americans earning more than $1 million. Now, reports say that plan will be formally released sometime next week in a joint address to Congress. The move by the president is expected to go toward funding his upcoming American Families Plan, which is expected to have a price tag of $1 trillion. Now, that measure would aim to help U.S. workers learn new skills, expand subsidies for child care, and make community college tuition free for all. It would be separate from the more than $2 trillion infrastructure package, which would be funded by an increase in the corporate tax rate. The proposal would make good on President Biden's campaign promise to require America's wealthiest households to contribute more as a percentage of their income. The capital gains tax is especially important to Wall Street since it dictates how big a chunk of an equity sales collected by the federal government. For those earning at least a million dollars in high-tax states such as New York or California, rates on capital gains could climb above 50 percent when coupled with state capital gains taxes. According to an estimate from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center based on President Biden's campaign platform, the capital gains increase would raise $370 billion over a decade. Brian? So about $37 billion a year, I guess, uh, not not a huge sum of money, that but certainly maybe one uh, birth, I would think. Yeah, well, you wonder, you know, you talked about it at the end, sort of the, the tax ideas, increase in New York City tax, increase in capital gains tax, potentially yeah. impact uh, an increase but, but in, in also, income tax. But also consider now, consider now you only get that 20 percent rate if you hold a stock for more than a year and you're not you're not churning, right? Because if you're churning, then you're paying your effective income tax rate on capital gains. So it really impacts just the highest earners and they just don't get that that sense of uh, savings on longer term investments. Sure, but it wouldn't just be it wouldn't just be equities. It would be owning a business, owning a, a variety of things that might be subject to the capital gains tax as well. Maybe more than a doubling. Yeah, it's it's a big number. Well, listen, well, if you're a realtor in Florida or Texas, Bertha or Tennessee, mm. a no tax state, this you're, you're licking your chops right now. This could be very good news. Bertha Coombs, we'll see in a few minutes. Thank you very much. All right, let's talk more now about the tax plan and get one big and rare single stock pick from your next guest. Dan Veru is the co-chair and chief investment officer of Palisade Capital Management, and he joins us now. Dan, don't worry. I'm not, we're not going to ask you to dive into the, the dirty world of politics, but your job is to grow your clients' wealth over time. Capital gains a big part of that. We've seen them, by the way, stock markets can go up even when capital gains rates go up. We've got a 50-year chart that can show that, but what do you make of this proposal? You know, uh, Brian, I was thinking about that. You know, we take a very long-term approach to investing, and we have a lot of clients who who pay substantial taxes. 
Our experience has been that wealth is compounded over time in the stock market. And if you pick the right companies and you focus on companies that have certain characteristics, I think it really doesn't matter what they change the uh, tax rate to, because if you pick the right companies, you don't have to really turn them over very much. Yeah, and we've got a chart up, and I don't know if you can see it. If we could throw it back up, guys, it's a little complicated. It's a little wonky. It comes courtesy of ETF Trends. And basically what it shows is the pink are the top end of the capital gains. So you can see in the 1970s, we were over 30%. The white is the S&P return by year. And, Dan, what it shows without people looking at it at 5 o'clock in the morning going, what the heck is that? It looks like my EKG right now, to be honest with you. Basically what it is, Dan, is that if capital gains rates go up, a little bit, markets can go up. What we look at is the big lump in the middle, the 1970s, where we know that the markets did absolutely nothing overall, ended the Dow up one point. So do you think, Dan, there's a capital gains level, you raise it, that's fine, it's sustainable, no one's going to complain, but at a certain number, it discourages investment. Is there that sort of breaking the donkey's back type number? yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Brian. And whether this is the number that breaks the donkey's back or not, difficult to tell. It seems like it's a big number, uh, but equally important. It's a significant number when you look at it on a global basis. It puts us perhaps at a at a disadvantage from a capital standpoint. And that's what I'm concerned with uh, with the uh, initial proposal. But where we're starting and where we're ultimately going to end up you know, I have a feeling it's going to be a very different place when when coming to this topic, because when you raise capital gains by so much, there's just less capital for reinvestment uh, in other areas. Well, Dan, while we got you on and you don't roll out single stock picks very often, by the way, and you talk about long term yeah. holdings, but you're doing it for us and we appreciate it. You're kind of yeah. a guy that will break out a pick every couple of years and you're breaking one out for us now. Danaher, yep. Yep. DHR, yes. kind of the mini yep. GE is in a good way, <laughs> maybe not the bad way. <laughs> what do you like about Danaher? You know, uh, so this is cur- this 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 stock, as you know, Brian. We talk a lot about small cap stocks. Will Potter, who runs our focused all cap equity strategy, this is his top holding in that strategy, and he's probably forgotten more about Danaher than most people know, but. This company has compounded wealth over such an enormous period of time, really because it generates a lot of free cash flow. The company focuses on uh, high uh, uh, return on invested capital. And uh, really, it's a management team that's done extraordinary things with a portfolio approach to the businesses that they are in. Uh, And really, you know, that's that's a very rare a uh, rare combination of a management team that look at uh, individual silos of opportunity within their businesses, but can also step back and look at their businesses as a portfolio as well, really looking in two dimensions. I remember visiting Danaher back in the late 1980s. It was sub $1 billion of equity capitalization. It's now a $180 billion company. Uh, and that does not include the fact that they've spun off uh, several other publicly traded companies along the way. So it has been an extraordinary wealth builder. So to our earlier conversation, if you can find companies like this, you can be extremely tax efficient by owning them because you don't have to jump in and out of them. We like it. Dan Brew, Palisade Capital Management, coming on with a, with a pretty rare stock pick 
Donaher as a long-term holding DHR. Dan, a real pleasure to get you on this Friday. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Brian. See you soon. All right, you're very welcome. All right, folks, we have got a lot more to do on this busy Friday. And up next, your big money movers. Why one big toy maker is having trouble keeping toys on the shelf. Plus, crypto's come down continues as hundreds of billions are wiped from the markets amid Bitcoin's latest slide. We'll show you the latest prices. And then, former White House Deputy Press Secretary and now successful entrepreneur Tony Fratto is here to tell you if Biden's tax hike proposals could actually happen or if this is just like Dan just said, an opening bid in negotiations. Dow Futures up 50, and we're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back. Time now for a check on some of today's big money movers, all about chips, Barbie, and hard seltzer. Stock number one, Intel. First quarter results topping forecasts. Company raising its sales outlook for the year on booming demand for PCs. But sales of data center chips, big ones, missed expectations. And Intel's second quarter profit forecast, shy of analyst estimates. All this as Intel spends heavily to get back on track and try to catch up with rivals with faster semiconductors. Intel CEO addressing that last night with Jim on Mad Money. The hole that we're in over the last several years isn't nearly as big as the one that we had back in that 2005 time frame. And the assets that we have now in our process, our product, our packaging, our software investments are much stronger. So I'll say, boy, you know, we are out to compete. We're going to be aggressive. Now, Gelsinger also told Jim that the global chip shortage, which has disrupted everything from manufacturing of cars to electronics, could go on for at least two more years. Wow. All right, stock number two, Mattel, the toy maker, reporting a nearly 50% rise in first quarter sales as American parents, armed with stimulus checks and savings, bought Barbie dolls and Hot Wheels, bought anything really to keep their kids occupied and quiet while they did not go to school and Mom and dad tried to work from home, I'm told. Mattel raising its sales growth outlook for the year. Finally, stock number three, Boston Beer. Its first quarter earnings crushing expectations. I mean, just laying them to waste. But that had truly more to do with truly hard seltzer and twisted tea. Growth was driven by those brands. While Sam Adams, Angry Orchard, and Dogfish Head Beer actually saw declines. Everybody's drinking the seltzer. All right, on deck. Just when will the J&J vaccine come back to America? Or will it ever? 
an important conversation with a member of the CDC committee meeting today on just that. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine remains off the market in the United States for the most part after just a few cases of blood clots in people who received the dose. The CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is set to meet today to discuss whether to recommend putting it back on the market. This is some other countries like Germany eagerly accept the J&J vaccine and are giving it out to their citizens. Let's talk more about it and bring in Dr. Wilbur Chen, professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and a member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices meeting today. Dr. Chen, it's really uh, good to have you on. It's really important to have you on. Do you anticipate we will see the J&J vaccine again being given out in American arms? Brian, yes, I think that um, there is a willingness for us to use this vaccine. Uh, We did need to make an important pause to be able to look at this safety information, to be able to consider kind of the risks, but certainly... I think that the, there's a, a huge amount of evidence that the benefit greatly outweighs this risk. We're going to be able to look at this a little bit better and then come up with a set of recommendations that I think that everyone will be happy with. And how do you assess the risk, Dr. Chen? Because I will, I will admit it. You know, you go through the numbers. We don't know the denominator. But if you look at the number of people, the number of people that had blood clots, you're literally talking about a lightning strike type odds event of getting some kind of thrombosis from the J&J shot. Do you believe that the risks were actually higher than the numbers that were out there in the public? Well, I think we'll get a better number today. Certainly, you know, last week it was uh, hastily put together information because we had only learned about these events over the past, you know, 48 hours. But now that we've had this pause, we've been able to be much more thoughtful and gather that information. So actually we will have a better denominator. We know that, uh, you know, according to the CDC's counting of vaccine doses, there's about 7.9 million uh, J&J vaccines that have been uh, administered. Uh, and now we uh, will be able to get a good case count. Um, it may not be perfect, but we don't need to have perfect to have actionable information. Because, doctor, I don't need to tell you the, the, the criticism, if, if you want to call it that, is, OK, there is an extremely long. By the way, 275 people a day in America die of blood clots. Uh, that's from the American Clotting Association, unrelated to anything having to do with covid. There are people who will say, OK, we've had six or seven or 10 or even 100, whatever the number might be, doctor, cases. But by pausing it, you're putting thousands or tens of thousands of people at risk of COVID and a negative outcome as well. Take us in the meeting. 
How does the medical community evaluate risk? There's no such thing as zero risk, although we'd like that's it to right. be, I think, right now. How do we, how yeah. do we balance that out, doctor? Well, let me also give you perspective as well. Remember when we first launched the Pfizer vaccine and then the Moderna vaccine shortly thereafter, we had within the first 48 hours, the first anaphylaxis events. And I think that that also caused um, a lot of concern, uh, fear, dismay, what have you. And so I think that, again, for us to be able to communicate that risk out to the public and to the medical community is an important part of us uh, being able to react and understand uh, the, the risks versus mm-hmm. the benefit. So I, I think that I totally agree with you. The risk is very, very minor. But until we were able to fully consider that information, we could not contextualize that to the rest of the uh, medical community and also to the public as well. We will have more confident numbers today. And I think that that also engenders more confidence. We've only uh, paused for 10 days. Hopefully that will not be harmful in the long run. Mm -hmm. But we, of course, want to engender that there is some confidence in the system for collecting safety information. And overall, doctor, have we or are we close to reaching peak vaccine in many areas? We're already in New Jersey, where I am starting to see supply far outstrip demand. We're seeing it in in New York City, where only 25 percent of the population is fully vaccinated, which blows my mind, considering New York City got devastated. I don't know what what's going on up there, but. Do you think it's it's peak vaccination in some areas already? Well, I think that what what you're talking about is that there is a, a fixed amount of supply that is, um, you know, right now this third vaccine is being taken off, uh, you know, temporarily, and so it would be great to have that third vaccine return back to the supply, and uh, our ability to deliver vaccines is also. Uh, you know, weighed against the the huge amount of um, vaccine hesitancy and some people who are uh, unable to access vaccines. And so, again, that makes it difficult for us to eventually get those shots in yeah. arms. So I think that that's what you're dealing with as well. Yeah, we've got to overcome that somehow. Certainly uh, there we're looking at the COVID-19 vaccinations. The good news is the vaccination program is doing still about three million shots in arms per day. Dr. Wilbur Chen, we appreciate you coming on, sir. Thank you very much. Good luck at the meeting today, and uh, let us know how it goes. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much, Brian. All right, you're very welcome. Take care. All right, still on deck. Just how much might your taxes, CNBC viewer, go up under President Biden? You don't have to just be a millionaire. And how many would it really impact? We'll call him Mr. Tax, Robert Frank. He's been crunching the numbers literally all night, didn't sleep, stayed up, Burning the Midnight Oil, and he will join us about just that next. Tax the rich. President Biden aiming his economic target at the top earners, preparing to tell America's rich to pay up in the form of one or more massive tax hikes. Washington looking to turn up the pressure on Tesla over its autopilot system, That follows the latest deadly accident involving one of its cars. An insider buying makes it triumphant return with the top five stock buys by the C-suite and the exec choo-choo choosing to snap up shares before making his exit. 
That's a train pun, but it's relevant to the name. We'll bring it to you on this Friday, April 23rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. It's not just a train pun, it's also a Simpsons reference. Ralph Wiggum, you choo-choo-choose me. Welcome back, everybody. That's the kind of week it's been. I'm Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right out of the markets and your money. And after the declines of what we'll call the April surprise, reports yesterday afternoon coming out, the president may be set to propose more tax hikes, including a potentially record high capital gains rate of more than 43% on those making more than a million dollars per year. By the way, that would be a doubling of that tax rate. Keep in mind, capital gains rates have never, ever been that high, even in the dismal 1970s. The only thing good was rock music back then. Stocks fell across the board, by the way, on the news. The Dow ended down 321, but markets have had some time to digest it. And futures, they're higher. Dow futures up 60. Kind of had that instant reaction, the algo sell panic button. Well, guess, and by the way, 321-point decline in the markets ain't what it used to be when the Dow's at 30,000. Call me when it's 2 or 3%. Still, markets did fall, and we are higher right now. Got to check the cryptos, because it's not just any tax proposal. They've been getting hit as well. And remember, a couple of days ago on this program, seems like a lifetime ago, Guggenheim's Scott Minard said that Bitcoin would correct or could correct by up to 50% in the near term. It is down big since then, not just on that call, but look at that. Bitcoin down 8% to 48,000. It was above 60. Now at 48, Ethereum holding up a little better at the 22. But look at Ripple down 19%. Litecoin down 15%. I'm not even going to show you the Doge. I'll leave that to Joe Kernan. He loves the Doge, by the way. All the cryptocurrencies are down. Bitcoin down the least. But those are some pretty big declines on this Friday. All right. So those are your macro markets. Let's get micro. And after a few weeks away, your favorite segment is back. And I'm speculating. The list of the biggest buys by corporate insiders of the week. Something to know ahead of time, by the way. We have seen a lot of selling by CEOs and board members the last couple of weeks. In fact, overall, much more selling than buying. Now, people will sell for a lot of reasons. But normally, they'll buy for just one. They think the stock's going to go up. So really pay attention to these names. And as always, we are counting you down. Five to one. Also a good door song. Courtesy of InsiderScore.com. And here we go. Stock number five. App Lovin', not Mick Lovin'. App Lovin' Corporation. Ticker, App. A director buying right at the IPO. Snapping up $288,000 worth. It was the only C-suite buy into the IPO, which... Maybe didn't go as planned. Stock number four, Bed Bath & Beyond. The CFO, relatively new, stepping up for his first purchase in the C-suite, buying $489,000 worth of triple BY. Stock number three, another IPO. Self-driving truck company, Two Simple Holdings, TSP. A board member joining a couple of other insiders and buying $735,000 worth of TSP. And now, the two biggest insider buys of the week. You ready? Here we go. Number two, new residential investments. Ticker NRZ. CEO stepping up to make a buy in the secondary stock offering. His first 
was back in 2019 at another secondary. He didn't really time it well, but hey, who cares? He's stepping in buying a million dollars worth of the stock. And we're making all these train puns. The most insider buying this week, train car maker Greenbrier Companies. That's right. The CEO stepping up and snapping up $2.2 million worth of GBX. That's his second buy since announcing his upcoming retirement. Big buy there by the outgoing CEO. So those are your top five this week. App Lovin', too simple, a couple IPOs, throwing a bed, bath, and beyond, a new residential, and a green buyer. Remember, we bring this to you most Fridays here on Worldwide Exchange exclusively. There you go. All right, let's dive now into more of that reported big tax hike proposal by President Biden, reportedly set to request a raise on capital gains to 43.4% on those making income of more than a million dollars. Of course, the majority of everybody in America makes far less than that and likely won't care. But how much could the president raise from this? There are not many in this tax bracket. We tend to think there's millionaires and billionaires everywhere, but there's not. According to IRS data, here's the percentage of income tax filers with household incomes over a million dollars broken down by group. Making a million to a million and a half, it's about 242,000 households. A million five to two, about 98,000 households. Two to five million, 142,000. Five to 10, all those athletes out there, 348,788. And over 10 million, the super successful just 22,122, about 0.01%. Add that all together, it's about 2% of all tax filing households. Yes, they are rich, certainly. We'd like to be in those groups, but is it enough to generate any meaningful revenue? Robert Frank, Mr. Tax, joining us now. Robert, good to have you back on. We wanted to show those numbers because, yeah, we always talk, go after the rich. I get it. A lot of our audience, by the way, is probably in that group. Uh, it's a small but successful group. They can afford more, but how much do we think this might actually really raise? Well, you know, the, the thing about capital gains is, of course, you know, it's discretionary. So what we've seen in the past with capital gains is you can shift that amount of money. And that's why what we're seeing now is so important, because a capital gains rate of 43.4% would be the biggest increase in the, in the U.S. history. It would be the highest rate in U.S. history. And of course, it would be the highest in the entire world. Biden's proposal for a top rate of 39.6% plus the Obama surcharge of 3.8%, which they wouldn't get rid of, would mark the first time that capital is actually taxed at a higher rate than labor. Now, as you mentioned, it would only apply to those with capital gains income of more than $1 million a year. But since the wealthiest 5%, which includes many of that group you just showed, that group owns 85% of the stocks, any selling in advance of an increase could put pressure on the markets, as we saw a little bit yesterday. Remember, back in 1986, under Reagan's tax overhaul, the capital gains rate increased from 20 to 28 percent. As a result of that, capital gains realizations or sales of stocks and other assets, they surged 60 percent in the months right before that tax hike. Now, we could see 
some market declines in the short term with that selling pressure, but a lot of studies find there's little correlation between the broader market direction and capital gains tax increases over the medium and longer term. So it's not as if an increase in capital gains will necessarily lead to lower markets over the longer term. But the combination of state and federal rates would be a record high, especially in many of these top tax states. In California, if you're a wealthy tech founder or executive who's selling stock, you would pay a combined rate of 56.7% on your capital gain. New Jersey would be 54.1%. And in New York City, as you mentioned, Brian, earlier, New York State just passing an increase as well. The top combined capital gains rate would be 58.2%. With so much of Wall Street in New York City, that's why the market shuddered a little bit yesterday at this report, some of which should not have been a surprise. But obviously, this is the tax that affects investors and markets more than any other. All right, there's a lot to unpack. Robert, first off, back to the markets. And guys, we've got a graphic. It's a little busy. I'd like to throw it back up again. It's a chart that shows the top end of marginal capital gains and the S&P 500 by year. It comes courtesy of ETF Trends. Thank you. And it's a little busy, but what it's showing is the S&P 500 returns is white. So up is good, down is bad. Top end capital gains in pink is the rate. What people will say is the market can absorb higher capital gains. That's true. Look at that. Back in the 90s, we had higher capital gains, Robert, and markets went up, as you know. I think what this chart tells us is look at that lump in the middle, right? Kind of lump in the throat of investors when they hear about this number. That's that top end rate in the 70s, which, as we know, the 70s was absolutely horrible for everything but movies and music. So it's not a question, Robert, of just raising it because, you know, the politicians will get out and say, well, of course, markets can deal with it. Stop whining, rich people. It's how much they pay, not a raise, but a raise to where. Yeah, no, and it's a great point. And you also intro the segment with a question about revenues. And, and that is so important when you talk about capital gains, because as that chart, I think, also suggests, when you can shift, and, and again, capital gains is your decision to sell an asset, which is not like income, where people get income on a regular basis that's out of their control. Capital gains, what we've seen in 1986 and even in 2012, was you know a big increase in 1986, a 60% increase in capital gains realizations prior to that increase. And by the way, that was only from 20 to 28% where we saw a 60%. We are now going Mm -hmm. from 23.8 to 43%. And so that sale rush before the increase, if it happened, it has to pass Congress, would be massive. And that's why it's it's just tough to look at history and say, well, it won't impact markets because we've never seen a rate increase this high or a rate nearly this high. But it's it's just the latest in a string of proposals, Robert. Again, most people aren't millionaires, so they don't care. They're like, who cares about the rich people? Let them pay. But it seems like every proposal is, well, just tax the rich a little more. Let them do their fair share. That's fine, except when you start to just tack on all this stuff. You mentioned those rates. Now, those are marginal rates. We know that people aren't paying that, right? Effective tax. By the way, the effective tax rate in middle class income, which um, I love the middle class. I'm just saying is about three and a half percent, believe it or not. You can make a lot of deductions. But when you factor in the cap on state and local tax deductions, that was crushing for many of the blue states. What I find odd is that a lot of this is targeted at blue state people. That's the point. You're going after your own voters? Yeah, no, no. 
Well, and, and that's why the, the push to repeal SALT is going to be toast so tough, because on the one hand, you're saying we want to tax the, the wealthy to pay for this stuff. On the other hand, you're saying we want to give them a $600 billion tax windfall by repealing SALT. So yeah. I, I just think it's going to be tough to repeal SALT. And as you also mentioned earlier, this is going to drive that migration from high tax states to low tax states, uh, you know, as much or more as SALT, because you start to put these rates together. And remember... Capital gains, a lot of people just report that capital gains, big, big one-time income gain once. So a lot of people in that like top 0.1%, they get a capital gain. That's because they sold their business that year. It doesn't repeat the next year. And by the way, they're going to move to Texas or Florida before they sell their business and report that income. So I think that will drive the migration and the revenues won't be as high because people are going to front load all their uh, capital gains income before the increase. So after the increase, we've always seen capital gains collections go way down in the years after that. Or, or, or like we did in our RBI yesterday, why not just collect legal taxes owed, which is upwards of, I had the number low, could be as much as $500 billion a year due to the IRS that they simply don't collect. That'll pay for a lot of these school and kids plans that we're talking about. Robert Frank, thank you very much. All right, let's move on and talk more about this and talk about a guy that may be in this bracket. Question whether this could actually happen or it's just some high-reaching opening bid in an effort to negotiate down. Tony Fratto of Hamilton Place Strategies joining us now. And Tony, to Robert's point, you're probably sitting there just champing at the bit trying to get in. I'm here to announce that your new company will henceforth be known as Palm Beach Strategies Incorporated, and you are (laughs) forthwith set to announce your imminent move from your corporate headquarters from D.C. to, I'm kidding, kind of. You're a business owner. Someday you may sell the company. You're going to get crushed in taxes. What do you make about this? Yeah, there's no question about it. And, and honestly, what I was nodding my head when, when Robert said that, and actually, you know, we, we, we have an office in New York City now, uh, Sully. I live, in, I live in New York now. And, uh, and so, you know, you see that 60% hit potential is really significant. You think, maybe I should move to Texas uh, before this goes into effect. I think the thing, we, we're going to talk about portfolio investments uh, you know, and markets. Like your, your chart is awesome. But uh, the thing that we, we, we don't notice and, and doesn't show up on that chart, because those are all mature companies, is this incredible infrastructure we have for investing in early stage companies, angel investing, venture, the stuff that PE is doing and others. Uh, the, you know, the, the equity value of those companies and those guys are investing is something like zero. You know, when I started my business, it was zero. It's worth many millions of tens of millions of dollars now. If I sell it, I'm going to hit, get, you know, I would get hit at a, you know, nearly 60%, as Robert said. Founders of these businesses get crushed. And we say, well, why do we have a long-term capital gains rate? Is because we want to drive that kind of investment. Have we done that in the United mm-hmm. States? My God, have we done it. There's no place in the world like this for getting wacky ideas, the great ideas, the innovative ideas financed by risk capital. So you want risk capital. And, and this is, it's dangerous to say, like, well, you know, look, we're not, we're not going to kill the golden goose. We're just going to milk it for a while, you know? Eventually, yeah. you know, you... This is, Tony, this goose. is a hugely important point you're making, okay? Because... The politicians are going to get up there in front of the camera and go, well, the rich people just need to do their fair share. They pay a lower tax rate than their secretary, which, by the way, is inaccurate. By the way, we're talking about effective rates. They use marginal. That said, there's a difference between the hedge fund bro in Greenwich who's making, you know, 20 million a year by just pushing stocks around on a screen. 
Okay, then there's a guy like you or millions of other people, many of whom are immigrants. They borrow money from family. They quit jobs. They take huge debts to risk building their own slice of the American dream. No guarantee of success, no guarantee of income, maybe years without paying themselves an income in the hope that they build a business that they can someday sell or pass on to their kids or make a living at. That is what American business is. Your point is that these kind of rates are not just do your fair share. It's potentially discouraging that person from leaving maybe a good job to no income and taking a giant risk for their family to build something better for their kids. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I say that myself, right? Like we're, you know, not we're, you know, we're a small business and we did exactly that. I worked for 12 years. You know, my, my first office was Starbucks, you know, because it's free Wi-Fi and coffee, you know. And so you build all of that equity uh, because that's what you want to do. You know, you want to go and grow something and take a chance on it. And you could fail. I tell you, I can tell you as an owner, every single day, you know that your equity can go to zero. Every single day that can happen. And it doesn't happen like that when you have a job, you know, and you, but you do want people out taking those chances. I think back to, you know, you know, back in 1998, and you and I are old enough to remember this really well, you know, it's like, I remember Google coming along and these two, you know, uh, you know, immigrants uh, who, you know, were going to give us another search engine. It's like, you know, who, you know, what kind of idiot invested in another search engine? We had 20 at the time. Well, people did invest in that and they did believe in it. And it goes off and it becomes, you know, an amazing global company. We want yeah. more of it not less of it. And we should value it and not call these people names for going out and taking those kinds of risks. Yeah, it's well said because we we often talk about millionaires and billionaires. We don't talk about how they got to that level. And, And by the way, the millions of people, by the way, who probably failed along that way. Tony Fratto, we're glad you didn't. Sarasota plays strategies. I'm kidding. Hamilton plays strategies, at least for now. Tony, have a great day. Good luck to the Pirates, by the way. They need it. Tony, thank you. you. All right, let's get now to some of this. Tony's from Pittsburgh, in case you didn't know. All right, let's get some of this morning's other top stories outside of the world of tax policy proposals. Bertha Coombs, please tell us that something else is going on on a Friday. Well, we're still going to talk about Washington. Democratic senators Richard Blumenthal and Ed Markey are urging federal regulators to take corrective action against Tesla. Following that deadly accident in Texas involving one of the company's vehicles, the lawmakers sending a letter to National Highway Traffic Safety Administration officials, uh, the acting administrator Stephen Cliff, asking the agency to determine the exact cause of the crash to, quote, better inform future legislation around advanced driver assist systems like Tesla's autopilot. China's central bank is reportedly working to take control of Ant Group's vast trove of consumer lending data. According to the Financial Times, the central bank wants Ant to turn over its data to a state-controlled credit scoring company that would be run by former executives of the central bank. And Delta has announced it's agreed to buy 25 more Airbus A321 planes amid a continued bounce back in air travel. The order brings Delta's total purchase to 125 planes from Airbus. The first jets are expected to be delivered in the first half of next year. Brian? All right, there we go. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. Well, from airplanes to this. It's not every day you get a live rocket launch in your little hour of TV. 
But this morning is special. It's happening. So let's get a live look now. That is live at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. SpaceX launching its second operational commercial crew mission to the International Space Station for NASA. This launch critical for the company as it reuses a Falcon 9 rocket first stage and a Crew Dragon spacecraft from previous flights. Wow. Bringing SpaceX one step closer to fully reusable orbital spaceflight not just one-off. The Dragon spacecraft scheduled to dock with the space station less than 24 hours from now, around 5.09 a.m. Eastern Time. Let's watch the launch. Copy, one alpha. Endeavour launches once again. Four astronauts from three countries on Crew 2, now making their way to the one and only International Space Station. The vehicle is pitching downrange. Nine Merlin engines on the first stage providing 1.7 million pounds of thrust. Hearing good calls on first stage performance so far. We are T plus 30 seconds into the second rotational crew mission on board Dragon and Falcon 9. Falcon 9 will be throttling down the nine Merlin engines shortly. Wow, that is so cool. SpaceX, four crew members, three nations, headed to the International Space Station, reusable orbital space flight. That Falcon rocket will touch down on a barge in the ocean as the crew makes its way to the ISS. That is just cool to see and a reminder. If we need it, because there's so much going on, we can still do really great things as a country, as business people, as human beings of all backgrounds, nationalities, whatever, we can still do amazing things in this country. That is very cool. We're back right after this. First stage continues to fire for two minutes, 35 seconds, one and a half minutes into today's flight. All right, welcome back. Intel shares, they are under pressure this morning. First quarter results did beat forecast. The company raised its sales outlook for the year. Sounds all good, right? Well, sales of data center chips did miss expectations, and Intel's second quarter profit forecast was a bit shy of estimates. They're also warning about continued supply chain disruptions in semiconductors. Hard to sell something if you can't get it to your customer. Stock's down 3%. For more, we're joined by Joseph Moore, Morgan Stanley Semiconductor Analyst. Joseph, thanks for joining us. Are we buying Intel on weakness? Hi, good morning, Ryan. Um, You know, I believe in the long-term turnaround here. So I'd say, yes, I'd say, you know, it is going to be a tricky year. There's a lot of different elements that Intel has to navigate between the shortages, the PC market that's probably unsustainably strong in the first quarter is going to slow through the year and a data center market that that's off to a slow start, but will accelerate over the year. I don't expect there to be a ton of upside to Intel EPS over the course of, of 2021, but I am optimistic that they're going to write the ship from the product and process technology standpoint. And so I do like it longer term. Yes. You know, probably has brought up a lot, Joseph. I mean, listen, I've been cover. I I think I interviewed an Intel CEO in like 1998. They were on top of the world, man. Intel inside that little ding ding, whatever it was, the logo in the commercials. They were a beast. Then they screwed it all up. Where did Intel go wrong? If you could say, here's the biggest misstep it made and how they're fixing it, what would that be? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think they, they certainly had a lot of manufacturing issues at the 10 nanometer node, which was a two-year setback. 
And, you know, that makes everything kind of look bad. I mean, every product gets delayed. It, it's not just the fact that your manufacturing is late. It's the whole product roadmap got pushed back. And so I think, you know, we're going to have to resolve that. We're going to have to get these products out on time. And I think having a CEO who has credibility with data center customers, who has the credibility to hire the right engineers to get this turned around, you know, I think is really a critical step. So it's a longer term issue that they're in a hole right now. Uh, they're going to have to work their way out. But to your point, this company has a, a pretty phenomenal history and they have a strong position of incumbency in a market that really rewards that if you can just execute. And so they, they certainly have seen their, their slippage the last couple of years. But I am optimistic that we're headed in a better direction. Well, no doubt they had buyers just based on that history. Well, it's Intel. It's got to come back around. And to be fair, the stock has come up over the last couple of years, just far less than most of its rivals, Joseph. I think that's been the problem. And of course, back basically to its peak of 20 years ago. In fact, Intel, I don't think, has still gotten to its highs of 1999 or 2000, which sounds incredible. Is Gelsinger the guy to do it? The new CEO? I mean, he looks, he was on with Jim Cramer last night. He looks good, says the right things, got a smile. He's optimistic. Can he run the business? Yeah, I, I think he is really excited. I think this is his dream job. And I think he's bringing a sense of enthusiasm back to the employees that we talk to at Intel. So I think there's a lot of goodness to that. I think Intel's been a little bit demoralized by some of the challenges of the last couple of years. And I think he's bringing that enthusiasm back. And he's really aiming at a, at a much wider scope. You know, he's not just looking at restoring Intel's core businesses, but he's looking at building a bunch of new businesses. And, and I think investors have some trepidation about that. It's going to take time and there's going to be some investment. And uh, you know, I, I think he can, it's very important that you get the employees to be confident that you get that enthusiasm built in. And now to your point, he's got to execute. And certainly he has a track record of doing that, both at Intel and at other companies that have uh, you know, a lot of credibility yeah. with the most important decision makers in data center and cloud. So there's a lot of competition from Joseph. within our architecture. Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, got to wrap it up there. But we like the bullish take on Intel. Stock down a bit this morning, but Joseph Moore and Morgan Stanley, we appreciate you getting up early and coming on. Joseph, have a great day. Thank you. And folks, wherever you may be, hope you have a wonderful Friday and a great weekend as well. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. If I'm not back on Monday, alert the authorities. Squawk Box is next. Have a terrific day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 